0: Well, hey, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You guys were way better than the first service. I asked that and they were like, eh. (laughs) Uh, Oh, hey, that's me. Uh, If you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. For those watching online, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We're in the middle of our Awaken series where we're talking about that what God is here may not get us there. And, and here's the thing, as human beings, part of how we're designed and wired is that we should be growing. It's actually part of how God created us. And what that means is, is that there were things that worked for us before that won't necessarily work for us later. And the cool thing about being Christians, about having the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit wants to continuously do new things inside of us. But we have to be willing to set aside some of the old things, the old patterns, the old way of thinking to move into the new. Now, we're, we're coming into uh, this idea of awakening what God wants to do inside of us. And last week, we talked about awakening generosity, where Jesus shared the story, or we shared the story of Jesus taking the five loaves and two fish to feed the thousands. And the disciples came in, and here's the thing. So, so, sometimes we'll think of them as having a scarcity mindset, but the reality is they had a resource mindset. They, they had a limited amount of resources and they went, I don't know how this is possible. How do we take what's barely enough food to feed us to feed thousands? Now, I, I want to tell you that one of the things that God has been doing in us in a, as a community is he's been revealing that sometimes the, the resource that we're struggling with is courage. And let me kind of share more what I mean about that. So we're a church that seeks to be a Tove church. We want to not just do good, but bring God's goodness into the world. And this week I had several people who reached out to me and shared Tove stories. Moments where they stepped out in courage to bless somebody. And here was the best part. I had several people who said, I was scared, I didn't want to, and I decided to step into it because I didn't want to miss the opportunity. And then they shared what an incredible blessing it was. How many of you ever felt like the greatest resource you wrestle with is courage or the ability to do it? You know what I'm talking about? And sometimes what God wants to awaken in us is generosity, but first we have to realize is that we don't have to live in scarcity because we serve a God who lives in abundance. Amen? Amen. And that's really what we're stepping into is understanding that the God of the universe is ultimately the one who does it. It's not my job or your job to save people. It is our job to love people, to bless people, to show them how incredibly loving and generous our God is. But God does the heavy lifting. Our job is just to be obedient. Does that make sense? And so, as we've been talking about this last week, we looked at that part of the problem is the greatest limitation to our generosity is not our resources, it's our heart and faith in God's provision and character. That that's sometimes what, that's where our scarcity lies in, is that we have yet to develop an intimate relationship with God to understand His provision, His character. Now, I want you to hear this. As Christians, There's no place for a scarcity mindset for disciples of Jesus. We need to be awakened to a kingdom mindset, an abundance mindset, awakened to kingdom generosity. Now, sometimes this means being generous with our money, but more often than not, what it means is being generous with our time, our talents, our mercy, our grace, our love, our blessings. Generosity is so much more than a financial thing. It's a life thing. And when the Holy Spirit begins to awaken in something in us, we realize that we're operating out of what God is doing in us, that when we put ourselves in the path of the Holy Spirit, that He awakens something in us. Today marks the beginning of what's called Palm Sunday or Holy Week. And if you're not familiar, if you're new to church, Holy Week is the week before Jesus' death and resurrection. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem. And here's the deal. The Jews, the people of God, were generous with their praise. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were generous in their praise. And in just a few short days, they were equally generous with their jeers. They went from praising Jesus to celebrating Jesus to shouting, Crucify him. And this got me thinking what changed? What happened in between? Those few days between Sunday to Friday that they went from being so generously lavishing God and and proclaiming Jesus' praise to now all of a sudden shouting for his death and execution. Now, I think part of it is, is that humans are fickle. How many of you would agree with that? Human beings are fickle creatures. It's just kind of how we're wired. And I don't know if what changed is maybe they fell into the mob mentality. It's an amazing thing. When a group of people do something, you can very quickly turn with that group. Or maybe it was because the religious leaders, they had turned on Jesus and the followers went, well, if they don't like Jesus, maybe we're not supposed to like Jesus. Now, here's the thing. That's not a new thing. We see this right now in America where high profile Christian leaders might be protesting something and how quickly people in the church like, well, if they're, they're against it, we should be against it too, without ever asking the question, is God against it? Or maybe what changed inside of them was just simply they realized that Jesus asked some pretty hard things and it was kind of hard to accept. See, as we look at Holy Wheat, I started processing through how quickly I turned my back on Jesus. And I'll be honest, it's it's something that I've struggled with my entire life. Anybody else, am I the only person who struggles with turning their back on Jesus? Probably not. Like sometimes it's so small decisions. God calls me to do something. I call them God blink moments. And here's here's what I mean by this. Hey, God, can you just like blink for a moment? I know you're all powerful and sovereign and see everything, but can you just close your eyes for a brief moment while I make this really bad decision? Some of you are chuckling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm doing it because there's a part of me that knows that what I'm doing isn't what God wants. But in that moment, I'm only concerned about what I want. How quickly we turn away. How quickly we're kind of like Dory from Finding Nemo, right? We just kind of forget what God has done. We forget how good Jesus is, how true the gospel is. I forget that Jesus is king because I want to be king. And what if Holy Week is an opportunity for us to remember? To remember why Jesus came, to remember our need for a savior, that before we point fingers at the Jews and the Romans, it wasn't the Jews who shouted crucify him, I shouted crucify him. You shouted crucify him because Jesus ultimately died for my sins and your sins, not just theirs. Amen? And I think Easter is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves that we are responsible for the cross. Now, uh, we have this fast, a church-wide fast on Wednesday, and what we're preparing for is Monday Thursday. Now, if you don't know what Monday Thursday is, this is how I know when you're not raised Lutheran or Catholic. Anytime you say Monday Thursday, it's not Monday Thursday. For the longest time, I'm like, what's Monday Thursday? That is the weirdest holiday ever. And Monday is Latin for we get our word mandate. And so it's Monday. And what it is is the great command that Jesus gave in which he washed the disciples' feet. We're reminded that those in the kingdom will become servants, not kings. That those who lower themselves to love others just as Jesus does, that's the great command to become servants first. And so we're taking that Wednesday and we're going to celebrate as a meal. And then for those who want to, you can fast Wednesday and then Thursday night before the Monday Thursday service. We're going to break that fast. Now, here's the thing. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you, some things that the Lord, I feel like the Holy Spirit's kind of giving me pictures of. And I was thinking about where God is, what God's doing in Zion right now. And, you know, we've added a bunch of seats preparing for Easter because every service has been getting more and more packed and it's really cool to see. And, and here's the thing, growing up in San Diego, uh, a lot of my teenage years were spent at the beach. And and so I, I started saying, okay, God, you're, I'm seeing you do something in our church and here's kind of the picture I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me. If you've ever been to the beach, there are two types of waves. There's the wave that's starting, and you'll get there, and it looks like it's going to form, and then it ends up dying down. You guys know what I'm talking about? It looks like it's going to start. It looks like it's going to crash, but instead, it swells, and then nothing happens. And the Pharisees would walk around and they'd make their faces long. Oh, I'm so hungry. They wanted everybody to know that they were suffering for God. That's when Jesus says, don't tell them that you're fasting. What he's really saying is, it's not that you don't tell people that you're fasting. It's that you don't walk around going, everybody, look at how holy I am. I'm going without food. Like, that's the idea. In fact, in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particularly, we know that there were times in which God called his people to fast. And what you're fasting from is not just food, but you're fastening. You're actually, instead of food, you're focusing on God. You're taking that time to put your energy so that every time you feel that hunger pain, every time you have that moment, you're reminded of your ultimate need for God, for Jesus. I want to read a quote. Uh, this guy's named Richard Foster. He wrote a book many years ago called Celebration of Discipline. And listen to what he says. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. And and let me kind of paraphrase it for you. What he's saying is, is that what fasting reveals is actually what's inside of you. How many of you have ever gone without food for maybe four or five hours and you get hangry? You know what I'm talking about? The hunger, angry. Any, anybody else get hangry, right? You get hangry and here's what fasting reveals. If you're fasting and anger starts to rise, you're not angry because you're hungry. You're angry because you have anger in your heart. Fasting reveals what's inside. On the other side, if all of a sudden you become prideful, And you start going, look at how spiritual I am. I'm fasting. That's God revealing that you've got pride. Fasting is about God opening up and revealing things. And now, so here's kind of what I feel like the Lord has been calling me to. And I want to invite you as a church if you want to participate with me. I felt like the Lord said, Jason, This is a time, and there's no promise here. God is not a vending machine that I put a a quarter in, I fast, and that's going to make God do things, okay? I'm not fasting expecting God, well, God, I did this, now you must do this. That's not how it works. What I felt like the Lord was saying is, Jason, I want you to pursue me because I I want you to find out what's getting in my way. What is it that's in your life, what's in your church that might be getting in my way of doing awesome things? And we do that by pursuing him. And so I felt like the Lord said, Jason, I want you to start fasting on Monday. Now, here's the thing. I don't know how long I'm going to fast. I didn't, the Lord didn't say do a day or three days. For all I know, I could fast four hours and the Lord goes, hey, that's good. Move on. Or it could be three days or five days. I, I don't know. I'm not going in with an expectation or a time frame. My expectation is to encounter Jesus. And so if you're interested, I don't want you to do this out of obligation. I don't want you to feel like, because I don't want you to feel guilted into it. I want you to do this because you want to pursue Jesus with me in this. For those of you who are interested, if you want to fast on Wednesday or if you want to start it on Monday, what I care about is this, is that we as a church community are pressing into Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit make the waves in our church. Amen. Because ultimately, if we want to see God move in Zion and in Clear Lake and in Mason City and Garner, it's not because of what we do. If we're the one making the waves, they will ultimately always die out. They will lead to things that are not what God has. Our job is to seek Jesus and let the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. Amen? Now, here's the other part is I want you to hear this is that as I'm fasting, that doesn't mean that I'm just going without food. It also means that I'm going to spend time in worship. And so if you have Spotify or Apple Music, find a good worship playlist, seek the Lord, read the Bible a little bit more, Uh, find times to listen to things that encourage you, go for a walk with Jesus, but make it an intentional time to connect with God, not just going without food, because if that's all you're doing, you're pursuing the fast, not the God who's calling us to fast. Does that make sense? So as we're doing this, I'm believing that God is going to to reveal some things. And part of what fasting does is it's a way for us to get out of our scarcity mindset and into an abundance mindset, reminding that it is the God of abundance who does abundant things. Um, So as we're getting ready for this morning, we're going to talk about being awakened into God's love. And uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, I started watching this documentary called The Jesus Music. Have any of you seen it? It's on Amazon and Hulu, and it's all about the rise of Christian music in the United States, And, and it starts back, now check this out, I didn't know this, but the Christian music movement that we're celebrating, that we see a part of, started as a result of the hippie movement. So it started with the 60s. Now, I know some of you were hippies because I've seen pictures of you with your big old afros and your peace signs and all that fun stuff. I've seen it, right? And what was happening is, is God was trying to get a hold of some people. And here's the part. In the 70s and then in the 80s, you started seeing the rise of people like Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. I had no clue how important they were to the role of music in the Christian world. And then there was this band Striper. You guys remember Striper? To hell with right? They were a a Christian metal band. And here's the crazy part. God started awakening things in the church. And you know who was trying to get in the way of it? It wasn't the world. It was the church. The ones who tend to want to get in the way of what God is doing are not non-Christians. It's Christians. It's churches that get caught up in going, well, God doesn't operate that way. And they showed this story of Pastor Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. Costa Mesa was about two hours from where I grew up. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa in 1968 to 70s, Chuck Smith started wanting to reach out to hippies. He had this small church next to the beach and he started inviting people into his church who did not feel welcomed by the church. And I want you to think about that for a moment a whole generation of people in the 60s and 70s who felt like the last place they could go was church. I hate to say it, but there are still people who feel that way about church today. And and so Chuck Smith said, hey, come as you are. And he started preaching the gospel and surfers and hippies started coming in and finding out about Jesus. And they show this video of people walking in barefoot into church. And I imagine right now, if somebody walked in barefoot into our church, how many people are like, you can't be barefoot in church. That's weird. Imagine if I took off my shoes and started leading Worship Barefoot. People like, come on, hippie Jason. Let's stop that, right? And, And they were coming in and they were encountering Jesus. And here's the crazy part. You have these people that were musicians. They were folk singers, people at Woodstock, people who were kind of in the Bob Dylan phase and all of that. And they started coming to Christ and they turned their music. Instead of singing songs that were about sex, drugs, alcohol, free love, all that stuff. They started singing about Jesus. And this movement began that started in Costa Mesa, Calvary Chapel, that began to spread throughout the United States. And it's estimated that in two years, 20,000 people came to Christ at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. They did over 8,000 baptisms. Check this out. We got some pictures of it. 8,000 people got baptized in the ocean waters. I want you to think about this. How many of you would love to see 8,000 people get baptized at church in the park when we do baptism in the lake? That's the entire city of Clear Lake. Like, how cool would it be of all of it? And I don't mean like, I'm not talking about taking people from other churches. I mean people who don't know Jesus, who are walking in and saying, I want to know that guy. I want to see an awakening. And the people who tend to get in the way of awakenings are not non-Christians, it's the church. It's the church who forgets that we love and serve a God who goes after the lost, whose heart is so big and so full of generosity and love that it attracts people. We got to remember that when Jesus hung out with people, they wanted to hang out with him. Christians, if we're loving Jesus well, we should be invited to parties because people want to be around us. That's the kind of person Jesus was. Now, we're going to get into our gospel story this morning, so would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 15, and and I'm sure most of you are going to be familiar with this text, this parable. It's a pretty common story, Luke chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, now I was listening to a sermon from Andy Stanley, and and he, he made a point, he said, Tax collectors were actually worse than sinners. So in other words, like if you're making a bunch of bad decisions and you go to mom and dad, like your parents are like, hey, stop that. And you're like, hey, at least I'm not a tax collector, right? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. How many of you have heard that story before, the parable of the lost sheep? There's, did you know in 2017, uh, a Christian worship artist, a guy named Corey Asbury, wrote a song called The Reckless Love of God, based on this parable. And you may not know this, is that there were a bunch of Christians and pastors and theologians that were really offended by the song. They're like, hey, 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 Corey, that's bad theology. God is not reckless. Now, here's the thing. When I say reckless driving, is reckless driving good? No. See, the problem is we think of reckless as thoughtlessness. But here's the deal. The reckless love of God, the only person who's at risk of being hurt by God's reckless love is God. That's what he's talking about when it says his reckless love. They miss the point. They miss the point that God's love is reckless because God himself put, him, put himself in the position of being heartbroken by people who don't want him. That's why God's love is reckless. God's love is reckless even to the world, the world looks at God and goes, that's foolish, that the gospel doesn't make sense. What do you mean that I don't have to earn salvation? Did you know most, and this is sadly, most Christians and non-Christians struggle with the idea that they don't earn their salvation. I know people in the church who want to believe that getting to heaven, being saved, they, well, I hope I'm a good enough person. I hear this from Christians all the time. There are non-Christians who believe the same thing. And part of the foolishness of the gospel is Jesus says, it's not about what you did, it's about what I do. It's about what I did. And in fact, I'm going to do what in the world looks foolish and unwise. I'm going to do this because I am a reckless father who will go to any length possible to rescue and redeem the people I love. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, this is what he says. For since, in the wisdom of the world of, since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. Have you ever really thought about how foolish and reckless God's love is? I want you to think about this, because to the world, and sadly, to many religious people in the church, God's love does look foolish and reckless. Because to selfish people, it is. It's hard and scary to love recklessly, isn't it? When I was in eighth grade, I remember writing a love note to uh, this girl. It wasn't Lisa, we hadn't met yet, it wasn't her. And I remember I drew this heart, so so cheesy and sappy. I drew this heart and had all these puzzle pieces and then there was a puzzle piece that was missing in it. And I gave her this note and I was like, what's missing in my heart is you. And she said, oh, Jason, you're sweet. And I went into my bedroom and I listened to Chicago and I cried. I recklessly loved, but there was not reciprocation. Isn't that the heartache of putting your heart out there? And that's the message of the gospel is we have a God who foolishly puts his heart out to people who don't want it, who stomp on his heart, and he continues to put it out there. People who have affairs people caught up in drug addiction and alcohol addiction, people so filled with pride, seeking for love in all the wrong places. To quote you too, they've done all the things, but they still haven't found what they're looking for because what they think they're looking for, they can find instead of realizing it's the God who finds them. You know what one of the biggest lies is? You don't find Jesus, Jesus finds you. I, I meet someone, hey Jason, I found Jesus. I didn't realize Jesus was lost. That is the reckless love of God, as He puts His love, His heart out there, and He wants to meet you where you are. And the hardest and scariest part for us, because we all know this—everybody, every single one of us in this room has had our heart broken at one point. Sometimes it's broken by our children. Sometimes it's broken by our spouse. Sometimes it's broken by an eighth-grade girl who doesn't return our affection. (laughs) I won in the end because I got my wife, and she's way better. (laughs) I'm Facebook stalked. It's true. (laughs) Just so you guys know, nobody at first service heard that, so you're welcome. And now all of you are like, where's another church? (laughs) That guy seems thirsty. Um, (laughs) You want to know the greatest proof of the reckless love of God? You know what the two ways that Jesus describes his people, his church? He calls us his bride. He calls us the body. And in Ephesians chapter 5, it describes that the the church, that our husbands should love our wives as Christ loved the church. And here's the thing. um, Wives are supposed to be set aside for their husbands. That that essentially what it means is this. They love and cherish their husband as their husband loves and cherishes them. And Jesus is always faithful to us, but we are often unfaithful to him. The church, instead of cherishing Jesus, we tend to, we tend to cherish the church. We cherish our brand, we cherish our policies and our rights and our music styles and our denomination affiliations, and we cherish our buildings and our limited understanding of God and things that we call theology. And and sadly, we cherish these things more than we cherish Jesus the husband, who is supposed to be the object of our affection? Or how about when he calls us the body of Christ? And, and here's the thing, like, there's no such thing as healthy people. You want to know how I know this? Because we're all heading in the same trajectory, death. We're all dying. There are healthier people. All of us have unhealthiness. And as a church, and I, I know this is going to be newsflash for some of you, Zion is unhealthy. We're a work in progress. We don't have our stuff figured out. Our cheese is sliding off the cracker, okay? I mean, we're, we're in the process of being figured out. And here's what's remarkable about Jesus. Jesus is the head. He is the one who's perfect. And some of you, whether online or here in this room, some of you have been hurt by the church. And you say, Jason, you don't understand. The church has hurt me. I don't want anything to do with the church. Here's the problem. Jesus says the church belongs to him. So when you abandon the church, you're actually walking away from Jesus. You don't get to choose one over the other. I wish it was different. I wish I could say differently. I'm not saying you're not saved. That's between you and the Lord, but you cannot say, I love Jesus, but don't like the church. If someone came up to me and said, Jason, I like you, but I hate your wife. I would say, we're not friends. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. And as the church, here's the remarkable part about this. Are you ready for this? Jesus isn't surprised by our unhealthiness when he left and he formed the church, he knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew that we were an imperfect people who are worshiping and set apart for a perfect God. He knew that. He wasn't shocked by it. When we're not acting like Jesus, Jesus isn't up there going, oh my gosh, I'm so surprised. No. Jesus is like, oh, now here's the thing. Just because Jesus isn't shocked doesn't mean he's not heartbroken. Jesus is heartbroken when the church, Jesus is heartbroken when you are not putting him as the first and foremost affection in your life. But it doesn't mean he's surprised by it. We are an imperfect people who worship a perfect king. Amen? And this is where the beauty of this comes in. And now, We believe that this book, this is a book called the Bible. The word Bible literally means library. This is not one book. It's a collection of 66 books written by flawed human beings who were inspired by the Holy Spirit through the direction of the Holy Spirit to bring us God's word. The problem is, is that this book, its pages, nowhere in it does it say that the hero of this story is you or me or Zion or any other church or King David or Paul or Saul or James or Peter. The hero of the Bible is God. He is the hero. He is the one that this entire book is about. Yes, there are elements that talk about who we are as a church, but when we read this and think that what this points to is who the... Look at how awesome the church is. No, just read the New Testament. Every single one of the epistles, which are letters written by the apostles to churches, man, the churches in the first century were whack. Like, we look really healthy compared to some of them. You read some of these letters and you're like, wow. Wow. Because God never expected the church to be perfect. The bridegroom is perfect. The head of the body is perfect. The people are not. We as a church just quite frankly, we're kind of messed up. We're, we're screwed up. We mess things up. We're, we struggle with selfish ambition and hatred and discord and gossip and slander and greed and, and racism and injustice and brokenness and sexual immorality. And again, that's just describing the churches in the first century, not to mention the churches today. And, and so as we look at this, here's what I'm reminded of. I had a conversation with a gentleman this week, and we were sitting in my office and we're talking, and we were talking about God's incredibly generous love and blessings. And this is what he said to me. He said, Jason, I just feel so unworthy. I don't deserve it. And I looked at him. I said, you're right. That's why it's called grace. If you deserved it, you wouldn't need grace. That's a reward. You've earned that. That's not grace. You don't earn grace. Grace is a free gift given to you in spite of you. And too many of us get caught up in thinking that somehow we have to earn God's love that we have to do something to deserve it. And the minute we do that, we've now stolen the blessing of grace because God wants more for us. Now, there's a reason why Jesus is called the good shepherd. Here's the thing. Nowhere in the parables of Jesus does he ever describe them as good sheep. It's always the good shepherd because sheep are dumb. And if you don't believe me, check out this video. Sheep are stupid. He's called the good shepherd. There's no books or no parables called the good sheep. Sheep, just quite frankly, are frustrating. In the first service, we had some people who have sheep, and as I was talking, every single one of them was like, uh huh. Yeah. Listen, here's some truths about sheep. One, sheep bite, they bite the hand of the people who feed them. Sheep are helpless against predators, they can't defend themselves. I'm not talking rams, I'm talking sheep. Now, check this out. Sheep are controlled by their urge to eat. So, what happens is a sheep will put their head down and they'll eat and eat and eat, and they're so caught up in what they're eating that that's why they wander away. They're consumed by their appetites. Kind of sounds like Christians, doesn't it? Next thing you know, they're lost, and the shepherd has to go find them. Now, this is the part I didn't know. And by the way, if there's any shepherds out there, if any of this is wrong, blame the interwebs, because that's where I got my information. So, here's the thing sheep. In order to digest their food, they need to lie down, but they're so stupid, they can't figure out when to lay down. So in Psalm 23, when the psalmist says, you make me lie down in green pastures, it's not you make me down to rest, it's you make me lie down because I'm so stupid, I can't digest correctly. (laughs) Like, I wonder how many of us, God needs to say, Jason, you need to slow down so you can stop gorging yourself and just digest a little bit. When sheep fall, they can't get up on their own. They are constantly in need of help. They also they tend to wander and get lost a lot. And I get this, I have a horrible sense of direction. I can get lost in a parking lot. Like it's so bad, no lie. So about four years ago, May and we were doing a raffle. I think it was three years ago. We were doing a raffle in the park and and it was 30 days if we wanted to get this raffle certificate so we could do it legally in the state. Or I could drive down to Des Moines, take 15 minutes and we could do it immediately. So I drive down to Des Moines and on my way back, I'm driving and I see this huge semi pulling this giant pink thing. I don't know what this thing was. This huge pink thing. I mean, it's massive. And I get ahead because this thing's going 55. I'm not doing 55. I won't tell you my speed. And so I'm driving and I have to use the restroom and I pull over. I get back on to drive home. And all of a sudden, now on the opposite side of the freeway is this giant pink thing. I'm like, hey, there's two of these things. <laughs> 45 minutes later, I realized I was heading back to Des Moines. Like, no lie. All they had to do was look on my dashboard and there's that little S that I just thought meant, hey, stupid. Like, no, that's south. I drove for 45 minutes in the wrong direction. Sheep have a horrible sense of direction. And I'm like, I'm a sheep. Sheep. Get easily scared. First of all, did you know sheep can't carry things? They're not pack animals. They can't carry heavy burdens. They're incredibly weak. They, they scare easily, are anxious and distressed and get overwhelmed. There are even sheep that faint when you scare them. I know some Christians who are like this. There's a reason why we're called sheep. And there's a reason why he's called the good shepherd. Because here's the part. Sheep tend to settle way too easily. Sheep, they'll find a puddle of dirty, gross, muddy water and they'll drink it when just a few feet away is a beautiful stream because sheep will settle for less. Some of you in this room have been settling for less for way too long, and you've got a God, a King, who is saying, I have a stream of living water for you. Would you stop settling for that nasty puddle of water, mud, and guck? And would you come to the living stream? And we're like, meh, right? I mean, and it's because we're dumb, which is why we need a loving Savior. And here's the remarkable part is, as dumb as we are, as frustrating as we are, the good shepherd lays down his life for every single sheep because every single sheep mattered him, even the ones who aren't even in his fold yet. Even the ones who don't, don't even want to be rescued. Even the ones who get rescued from a crack and then go jump into another one. Because to the good shepherd, you matter more than life itself. He lays down his life for you. Jesus left the 99 to go find the one. And John 10, it says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Sheep don't earn it, they just exist. That is the amazing love of God the reckless love of a shepherd who wants so desperately to rescue you from your brokenness, from your, your damaged marriage, your, the, all the wounds and the hurt, the shame-filled things that you're carrying around. And he's like, I, I love you. I, I don't care about that. I care about you. I want to I wanna clean you up. I want to bring you in. And that's what makes it so reckless is because there are so many that say, I don't want it, God. I don't, I don't want that love. I don't want that affection. I want to figure this out on my own. And, and God continues to love. God went to and still goes out of his way to show a crazy, generous love. He goes to extreme lengths. And that's why Jesus told this story, this parable of the lost sheep. Now, here's the thing just like I shared with what was happening in the early 60s and 70s, that often the people who get in the way of what God wants to do are the people of God. The longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is to forget that you need Jesus. The easier it is to think that somehow you've got life figured out. You're a pretty good person. You're pretty moral. I mean, you deserve these things. And and this is where God, we need the gospel to constantly remind us, no, I turn my back on Jesus all the time and he continues to have his arms wide open, lovingly open and saying, no, come to me. I will pursue you. I will find you. What would happen if we as a church became awakened to God's love in our lives and in the lives of the people around us? How many of you, and I don't want, please don't raise a hand. How many of you know people that desperately need God's love in their life? How many of you know people that are racked with shame and guilt that are making horrible decisions because they're searching in the wrong places? They're jumping into cracks that are getting them stuck. And you know they need Jesus, but they can't see they need Jesus yet. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I didn't want to come here. I followed a cute girl or I just wandered in. I thought, I thought this was something else. Maybe you're here and maybe you're hearing this and you're realizing that God is pursuing you. There's this story in the gospel of Luke. And it, it kind of illustrates exactly what Jesus has been talking about. So Jesus, he gets invited into the house of a man named Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus is going for a conversation with Simon the Pharisee. And it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world that you had this outer living space that anybody could walk into your house. It was just kind of a common area. And so Jesus is talking with Simon the Pharisee when all of a sudden, this well-known woman known for her sin... She was known because of her shame. She was known because of her sinfulness. We don't know what her sin was. It might have been adultery or she might have been a prostitute. But let's be honest, there are all kinds of different sins, aren't there, right? We assume it was sexual, but it doesn't mean it was. And she walks in. Now, this is especially scandalous because women weren't supposed to talk to holy men. And this woman walks in through the crowd, through the Pharisee's house with Simon and she falls at the feet of Jesus and she begins to cry, weep at the feet of Jesus. And she dries his feet with her hair. And then she takes this expensive jar of alabaster perfume and she breaks it open on the feet of Jesus. And Simon, the Pharisee in that moment, the only thing he can think is this woman doesn't belong here this woman does not belong here. And if Jesus knew, if he really was a prophet, if he really was a righteous man, he would know exactly who it is that's touching him. And Jesus, knowing Simon the Pharisee's heart, turns to him and says, Simon, let me ask you a question. Two people owe a man money. One owed three million dollars, the other one 300, and the man forgave them both. Who is going to be more grateful? Who is going to appreciate what has been given for them, what has been forgiven? And Simon the Pharisee wisely goes, "Well, obviously the one with greater sin, the, uh, with greater debt is the one who is going to be more grateful, going to lavish and be appreciative." And he looks at me, he goes, "Simon, you're right." This woman realizes how much she's been forgiven. Now, you want to know the twist in this? Simon was the lost sheep in that story, not this woman. Simon thought he was in the 99. He thought he was good. But somewhere along the way, he lost sight of what God's love was and his need for God's love. This woman was actually found. Now, this got me thinking. This is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Did you know that in the Gospels and in the Bible, the words good and bad are never used to describe people? Jesus doesn't look at people and go, good, bad, good, bad. He looks at people and he says, lost, found. Lost, found. Lost, found. I want you to think about how many people in your life do you know that are lost right now and there is a savior, a shepherd who is looking for them and searching for them. Now, here's the, the problem is some of us think it's our job to leave the 99 to go find the one. No, Jesus is the rescuer, not me, not you. Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. You know what our job is to be? Our job is to be, and imagine, imagine for a moment if Zion began to realize that our calling as a church was to be a funnel of God's grace and love into our community that every person we encountered, we were able to funnel this amazing, generous love of God in their life. And that includes for lost people. And so when we see people who are making really dumb decisions, who are acting like sheep, instead of judging them, instead of condemning them, we have the heart of Jesus to love them just as Jesus has loved me and he's loved you. We need to be awakened to the generous love of God. Amen? We need to see God awaken something inside of us because here's the thing, Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to seek that what was lost so that they might come. And then it says, listen, all of heaven celebrates when even one sheep is found. Some of you in this room, you've walked away from God You've gone and wandered and gone into places that you shouldn't and you still belong to Jesus and Jesus loves you and he is pursuing you. It is the hound of heaven. He is looking for you in spite of you. And you need to come into the path of the reckless love of God. Some of you need friends, have friends who desperately need to know Jesus. What if you're the funnel and opportunity for them to do that? What if by you loving them as Christ loved you, that opens the door for the Holy Spirit to begin the work in them that they might come to Christ? Would you stand with me for a moment? We're going to come into our our closing time of worship. And and here's what I want us to think about. And I'm going to invite you. I'm going to invite you to something scary. Now, here's the deal. Uh, You may not, I don't want people looking around, but If you're in that place, if you're realizing I have not surrendered my life to Christ, I have wandered away, I am lost, I want to be found. I want to invite you this morning to do something dangerous. Would you surrender your life to Jesus and let him find you? You didn't find him, he's finding you. And if you want to do that, If you want to return back to God, or maybe you've never given your life to Christ, would you do me a favor? Make the bold decision. Would you just simply raise a hand right now between you and the Lord? Don't look around. If that's you, if you're like, Jason, I've been lost and I need to be found. Would you just raise a hand? Amen. Now I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you all to a dangerous prayer. You guys ready for this? And it is a dangerous prayer because if you do it, I believe God answers our prayers when we meet it, and here's what it is. Would you say, if you want this, if you don't, don't say it. Say these words. Jesus, give me eyes to see. Open my heart. Open my eyes. Open my hands. Open my love to you. Give me eyes for the lost. We're going to come to worship because God is seeking us. I believe that God is, that the work that God is doing in our church is bigger than Zion. We want to be a church that is a safe place that we are the sheep of his pasture. We're imperfect, we're broken, we're desperately in need of a savior. And we want to be a church where imperfect people can meet a perfect God. So as we come and, and we're gonna, we're gonna do our tithes and offerings and but here's the bigger part. What Jesus wants is you. And so as we close in these last couple songs of worship, would you make this an opportunity to be thankful, but more importantly, to ask God to awaken his love for himself, for others? And maybe, just maybe, you need to be awakened to love for yourself. Maybe you the person that you've despised the most is you. So as we close and we sing these songs, let, us, let this be a time of worship, of surrender. Let us come and worship the King because it is the amazing, reckless love of God. Let's come and worship.